I first heard about the idea of rewilding and it gets, someone gave it a name, I think it was about 2005 I first heard that word, I didn't need anyone to explain it to me. It was just, it was just like, oh yeah, that's it. That's what we need to do. We need to rewild. We need to make things wild again. Okay, that's, that's a loaded term. It's not perfect. You know, people will argue and fight about what does wild mean and blah, blah, blah. But we know what it means. We know what it means by how it makes us feel. We, we know what people mean when they say that. Bloody Moses. Ow. Hello, Ollie. Hello. Stop shouting in my ear holes. I am very old, too old to be shouted in the ear holes off of. Welcome to Sustainable oh. 188. Welcome yourself, all to Sustainable 188, my very shouty cardboard box covered chum. How are things in your incredibly high fidelity audio babble suite? Didn't it sound good last mm, week? I'm enjoying Doesn't it. Sound it, it may good be now. high fidelity audio. It is low temperature hence me being here in my puffer jacket but no i am very very good i am particularly good because i am excited about this week's episode because in this week's episode we're going to be talking about a thing that i have wanted to talk about and i'm really interested in and it's great and i'm really hopeful about it and that thing is rewilding yes that is what we're talking about what was I going to say then can't remember no that is it that um, it's an amazing thing I just finished reading a book about it and that means I know stuff because I'm a white man and now I'm going to tell people mm. about what I know um, so we're going to get a guest on people need your gonna... opinion now yeah exactly uh, we're going to talk to a friend of ours called Alistair Cameron who last heard on the babble on episode 61 in episode 61 he was banging on about blackouts but we did end that episode by him saying can I come on and talk about like the stuff I really care about like nature and stuff and we said yeah yeah we'll have you back on to do that one. really and yeah yeah we did do that and and this is now and that is this so yes just 127 the... episodes later <laughs> we got round to inviting him back He's the director of Somerset Wildlands, which is a new organisation that is doing rewilding. There are a few rewilding projects, basically letting nature rip, getting out of the way of it, letting it do what it will, and ultimately, down the line, you know, bringing back exciting big animals and stuff. Although, as, as Alistair was at pains to point out, just in case anyone's scared, he's not doing that straight away. Uh, yeah, but we I found think it's out five years, he said, until dinosaurs are back, um, <laughs> but only two years until dodos are back, so that's cool. But it... It's really, it's an amazing thing. So rewilding is like, it's a process, it's a thing, it's a state of mind. Uh, it's this effectively a massive big experiment. It sounds really cool. And like you'll hear the hope, the hope dripping from Alistair Cameron as he talks to us. Dripping hope he was, all, um, And it's, it's impossible not to think how amazing rewilding is. Particularly, I suspect, if you actually go and see it. Just the usual disclaimer, uh, we work for environment charities, so if you've got any beef or um, dead links or, de or dead, what's the or dead wolf? Is that still beef? No, it's something else. No, it's uh, dog. If you've got any dead wolf with anything <laughs> I say or Dave says or indeed Alistair says, uh, take it up with us. Don't take it up with the people for whom we work. All right. Yes, all right. Let's get on with it. This is jolly good. And yes, we did start by asking Alistair whether or not he was going to be bringing back 
big bitey things into the middle of the English countryside. And this is what he says. So, Alistair, you want to put, like, wolves and lynxes and giraffes... Crocodiles. ...and um, tigers in everyone's back garden, don't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, the... You know, I was thinking the strap line for my new organisation could be a wolf in every village. You know, I thought that would really <laughs> sort of capture the spirit of it. Um, no, is the simple answer. No, we don't want to do that. Um Everyone, whenever we talk about rewilding, everyone gets really excited about the idea of what animals we're going to bring back. You know, every journalist you speak to, they say, so what animals are you going to bring back? What are you going to bring back? And in a way, that's kind of good because it shows there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm in that. But of course, it's also complex and difficult and controversial and people get upset about it because they think the wolves are going to eat them or eat their livestock more likely. Um, Look, I'll be honest, I'd love to see wolves back in the UK. I'd love to see lynx back in the UK. Um, Lynx are cats about the size of a sort of Labrador, you know. Um, what? That's, that's massive. That's still quite big. You say, that's you say big just because Labradors are cuddly and stupid doesn't mean a cat the same size. Yeah, is right. like, they, they, they weigh about 20 <laughs> kilos. Do you know what I mean? You could just pick it up and chuck it out the window. Do you know what I mean? I mean imagine, I'm saying, I I said to, imagine if I said to you, it's, yeah, it's a rat. It's a rat the size of a Labrador. But it's <laughs> yeah, just right, a fair rat. enough. <laughs> anyway, I, I feel we're getting into the kind of territory I was trying to avoid here, um, which <laughs> is about how big and fierce and how many claws they have. Yeah. No, the point is, of course, there's loads of species I'd love to see back in the UK, but rewilding's like not just about bringing back species that's one aspect of it in fact in a way it's it's kind of the least aspect of it you know rewilding is is one of these terms that gets quite involved and quite controversial about what it means but i think in essence what it really means is it's two things one of them is a it's it's a kind of two word used by people in the wildlife business in the kind of bringing back wildlife business and it means essentially leaving land alone for nature to do its thing for nature and natural processes to decide what happens to that land um and restoring some of those processes that are important to do that. So, for example, the reason we talk a lot about predators like wolves and lynx and stuff in rewilding is because those are completely absent from our country. It's a bit different in some other countries, but in this country, they're completely absent. And so that's a whole ecological process that's missing from our landscape. So that's why they come into it. Um, but rewilding is not just about that. It's in, it, in, its, in, its, in its core, it's really just about letting nature do its thing. Now, we might need to put some bits back in place to try and get a result we like, but ultimately it's about letting go. Will you be my mommy? <laughs> you smell like dead bunnies. So when you say, just to be totally, totally clear, when you say bring some animals back or bring species back or whatever, like you are, you are talking about stuff that used to be here, like yeah. nat- native species that, you know, X years ago were here and are gone because what hunting overpopulation yeah, exactly. over exploitation is that what you mean? So like when you say wolves and lynxes, like we used to have wolves and lynxes, yeah, right? definitely. This this yeah, I mean I'm going to talk about right where I'm now, which is in you know down in Bristol, and I've got an organisation in Somerset. In the Somerset levels, you know, I often joke they were the Okabango Delta of England. That's my sort of pitch thing because they would have absolutely teemed with wildlife, most of which we've completely forgotten. You know, there were pelicans, there were sturgeons. Serious? I mean, there were pelicans stur- in yeah, Somerset? Yeah, pelicans, yeah. There were, there were sturgeon. They can be like oh, up to 15-foot long fish. You know, there were um, lynx, there were wildcats. You know, we think of wildcats as a Scottish thing now, but of course they're not. They're found everywhere. There were beavers, there were wild boar, there were moose. 
There were, you know, sea eagles. There were a whole bunch of, like, really exciting animals that, you know, lived in this part of the world not that long ago, to be honest. You know, pelicans were here possibly in the Middle Ages, though they might have died a bit earlier. Beavers were here in the Middle Ages. Wolves only died a couple hundred years ago. Sturgeon, I mean, the last big sturgeon in Somerset was only about 170 years ago. So, you know, these animals aren't that long gone. And in an ecological eye, in an evolutionary eye, it's, 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 it's like, a, you know, it's, it's less than a blink. You know, it's, it's the impulse that makes you think about blinking. <laughs> so when we talk about bringing them back, that's what we mean. Um, I mean, the other thing I should have said, I suppose, about rewilding, because not everyone will know this, you know, people might be sitting there thinking, why is rewilding different to what normal conservation charities have done? Why is it different than what the RSPB do or our national parks or any of that stuff? Well, it's kind of different in a few ways. I mean, firstly, conservation, which is is great, don't get me wrong, it's achieved wonderful things. But that has basically been about saving stuff as it is. So you've gone somewhere with a bit of wildlife in this country or a remaining bit of wildlife or a bit of farm that's got slightly more wildlife than the next one. And you've gone, this is better. This is, this is good. Let's keep it. Let's do whatever is happening right now that's allowed this, this to take place. So that's what conservation's traditionally been in this country. So it's about keeping things the as they of, are. That's the sort of thing that Ol gets excited about when someone has conserved a small field mouse or they have conserved yeah. a high-winged fritillary or something. And you come on this podcast, Ol comes on and he goes, look, there we are, we've saved the planet because we have managed to not destroy entirely that thing. Or, yeah. or perhaps, you know, there are now four of those things where previously there were just two. Uh, like, oh, two. It's like, a good thing. Like this summer, there was uh, very exciting news about the, I think it's the great blue or something blue, large blue butterfly, which which like is an absurd creature because it relies entirely on a habitat that where there are slopes at the right angle so that the sun makes the soil the right temperature so that a certain species of ant gets tricked into thinking that the larvae of this particular butterfly is actually one of its own larvae, takes it into its burrow, uh, feeds it, uh, whereupon it like go, turns into a butterfly thing, caterpillar thing, eats all the other larvae from the ants, turns into a big blue butterfly, and then a load of quite, quite disappointing men, uh, it is always men, in, in khaki <laughs> say, yay, we've got some more butterfly. This really is a fantastic moment. It's 150 years since Harold Burkhill recorded the last large blue butterfly on Robra Common. I can stand here today in this fantastic weather with large blues flying around my legs. I think that is a, a good, you know, good success. I think story. that's an excellent use of everyone's time and energy. I really do. I think <laughs> con- con- huge, con- yeah. huge amounts of money. Well, conservation has, what I would say about it this way, is conservation has left us what is left to us. It has bequeathed us with the stock of wildlife that we still have. And I'm not suggesting we should get rid of that. You know, I'm not suggesting, you know, I'm not suggesting we should get rid of those carefully managed nature reserves that are preserving a, a thing that's found nowhere else. We need that. But we also need far more land where nature is just free to do what it what it wants, for want of a better word. It's, I hate putting it in those terms, but where it's free to express itself in ways that we can't predict. Because the more we understand about ecology, the more we understand about how wildlife fits together and works, the more we, A, realise we don't know about what wildlife actually needs to thrive, and the more complicated and interlocking it is. Um, so we, we sort of need to create space for stuff that we don't imagine to happen. You know, just spaces where things can change and adapt. Also, as our climate's changing, it's going to become increasingly important. You know, we're not going to be able to manage these habitats and say, well, this has been a this has been an oak forest for 
you know, 200 years, it's going to, we're going to do everything we can to keep an oak forest in the future. Now, maybe we should do everything we can, but at some point, the climate may change and that becomes untenable. Does that mean it's worthless? Of course not. It's a space for nature. And if you create more spaces where things can move and shift and ecosystems can adapt, then you can give what's left, what conservation has left as a fighting chance of expanding. The purple emperor butterfly is something that people love, big, big purple butterfly. When they start doing their kind of rewilding, rewilding light, whatever you want to call it, down in Nep, which is essentially where they got a farm. It's an estate in Sussex, a big estate in Sussex, where they got a farm that they've been working as a dairy farm and thought, oh, this isn't working. Let's reduce the number of cows, bring back some pigs and let it do its thing for 10 years. Well, everyone told them that, you know, they would have to do certain things if they wanted butterflies but it turns out that no one knew what the butterflies needed because what they actually needed was tons of scrubby willow trees, which you got in Nep, and suddenly it's got the highest density of these butterflies in the country. And no one could have predicted that. Suddenly when you bring back beavers, um, they suddenly boost a whole range of other species. So you could be working, you could be slogging your whole life out trying to conserve rainbow trout or, you know, sand lizards or whatever. Um, sand lizards, incidentally, don't just live in sand. They live in beaver dams in other countries. You could be, you know, digging out, working your whole life trying to create the conditions that are just right for this one species. But actually, maybe what's missing is something you haven't even thought of, like a beaver or a wild boar to create holes and wallows in the ground. Or, um, you know, it could even be a predator, a predator that makes the deer move, that makes the trees change how they grow, that suddenly changes the whole nature of the environment. And we can replicate a bit of that ourselves. But, you know, wildlife and nature does it so much better and more cheaply as well. And it's great fun. It brings a bit of wonder and excitement back to our lives. You know, we get so bogged down sometimes in ecosystem services and targets, we forget that people just get a thrill Dave, and a joy. Dave, play the ecosystem services music. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, quantifying your, your baselines. Yes. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and we forget the joy that we just get from having these creatures around us, you know? But I've read the book that uh, Isabella Tree has written about the NEP estate. So you mentioned mm. the NEP estate. And one of the things that comes out of that really, really clearly, it's a wonderful book. It's called Wilding. I recommend it to everyone. One of the things that comes out, she basically says, we had these animals that people told us we had to feed corn from fields and we had to make sure there were enough trees for them to live in. And then what happened was, when we just let nature do its thing, it turns out these birds don't like eating corn and they prefer not to live in trees. But they've had to eat corn because that's all there is. And they've had to live in trees because we knocked all the hedgerows down. And she went, the problem is that we've kind of forgotten that animals were around before we started ruining everything with massive, great agricultural deserts. And so, so yeah, so she really sort of hammers that point home i think what you're saying about it just letting stuff go and you'll yeah. get outcomes that you never in ways you never expected but you couldn't they couldn't have planned to have those butterflies come back if they did they'd have done it all wrong yeah exactly and I, and i think you know you've touched on something else there which is about how our memories of what could be uh, could what was I should say and what could be what are thinking about could be in the future have changed and um, you should get your klaxon ready but there's another phrase we use a lot in in, in sort of um, biology and, and rewilding which is called baseline shift which is where you know we sort of each of us accepts the world into which we were born as being normal 
And so we think yeah. of what we remember from childhood as being, well, that was how it used to be, and this is how it is now. Which and is so a fantastic shift- like, human survival trait, right? That's one of the reasons we can cope with the amount of change that there is. I expect that's right, but, it show- but it's also how quickly we forget what used to be here and what used to be normal. And how, you know, for example, I mean, you know, when we measure fish stocks, we measure them from the 1970s. So when they go up a bit, we go, oh, well, they're back to where they were in 1982. That's quite good. Well, not really, because if you look at where they were in 1800, they were in an abundance we can't even conceive. You know, that's how depleted our oceans were. Like the North Sea used to be clear. It used to be clear. Now it's kind of muddy and grey. It used to be clear because it had colossal oyster beds that filtered the entire thing you know, day in, day out. And there's people now trying to restore those. So that's kind of related, you know, trying to put that back because we've forgotten all these things. You know, we've forgotten there was sturgeon, there was wolves. And, and I think, again, in rewilding, we get very obsessed sometimes with the, the species, the exciting species that we've lost. And that's true because they are cool and they're exciting. But as much as anything, it's just the sheer abundance of life that would have been pervading everyday existence. You know, people flock to where my land is in Somerset to watch the starlings. You know, just about a million starlings do these fancy murmurations that they use on adverts. Um, that used to be common in every big town and city in Britain. You know, my mum used to watch that in Glasgow every day in the 50s because it was just standard behaviour. And now it's something people travel from all over the country to go and see in one or two special places. And that's just such a classic example of something that we now think of as rare and spectacular. Actually, it could just be part of our everyday lives and our everyday mm. culture. You know, people think of our... National parks, many people, I suspect, think of our national parks as wild. You know, they'll go to the Lake District or the Yorkshire Dales and they go, oh, it's wild because there's no one there. Well, there's no one there or not many people there. But those are farms, by and large. Those are farms. That is sheep, sheep grazed landscapes or burned, you know, moors for grouse shooting. There's nothing really wild about them. If you left them alone, you would have something entirely different. We three, perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. It seems it seems from a lot of what you're saying that this question which is ostensibly about the natural world is actually a question about us. It's about our heads and how we look at the natural world and how we look at everything around us because it's not about how do we manage this piece of land or how do we encourage this species to do this. It's how do we start to see things differently. And I, I remember, I distinctly remember the time where I went, I was walking on a hill in the highlands of Scotland, which is something I've done since I was little because I had family up there and my, my dad always took me up there. And I was always of the view that like these places were just incredibly beautiful, wild places. And they are incredibly beautiful. But I think there was a, I think it was probably a Monbiot column that sort Monbiot. of talked about how, you know, these are essentially should be covered in trees. Where has the Caledonian forest gone? It's now, you know, just... Well, never mind that. I'll go back and listen to episode 97 when George Monbiot actually said that with his mouth to us. Did he? And pay attention. In front of us? Yes. Yeah. I wasn't yes. paying much attention during that episode. Um, but but then, you know, when you look at it, when I look at it now, I'm up there and I and I see it completely differently. I, I look at it and think, what a travesty, even though it is sort of objectively beautiful. And I suppose that's kind of what, rewilding is more about then isn't it it's about changing our perceptions of our relationship yeah. to the land and 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 our imagination that's a long question yeah i think i think that's that's right and it's about learning to let go which is perhaps the hardest thing of all for any of us to do because it's very hard for any of us to say we don't care what happens we're just going to let go and so i always think with rewilding there's a kind of 
theoretical purity, then there's what actually happens because none of us is perfect and there's always compromises. But I don't think that detracts from the overall objective, which is you're trying to let go. You're trying to be hands off. You're trying to let nature do its thing. None of it's perfect. It's always flawed. We live in a tiny crowded island. There's always masses of compromises, but it's about shifting the dial in that direction. You know, um, I think, you know, where I am, there's a bunch of nature reserves. They're great. They should stay. Then there's a bunch of farmland beyond them. Most of that's going to stay too. We need farming. We need food, right? We're not going to get rid of all the farms in the country. But if there was just a proportion in certain areas that we could just just let it do its thing, let it go. I just think of the the joy we would get, the reconnection that we would get. Um, you know, we know that people need nature. We need to get back into it. So yeah, rewilding is a tool, but it's also about ourselves. You're completely right. And to me, it's about hope. You know, when I was growing up, wildlife is what happened somewhere else. You know, I grew up in Scotland and in Ar- in Ireland and in Scotland. And then I was still fairly young when I moved to England. And as far as I was concerned, 90% of whatever had happened here in the past was finished. It was like turning up after a, you know, after a concert, right? It was, you know, there was, there was a few drinks around, but it was basically over. And, and that's how it felt about wildlife when I was here. Now, I started to, you know, get into it more when I realized there were still amazing things. You know, there were the basking sharks and the puffins and all that. That was still great. But basically, we'd lost so much. And I couldn't believe it when I started to under- realize what, what had been here. I thought these were just things that lived in, in South America. You know, when I realized there used to be orcas and gray whales and all this kind of stuff were common rather than incredibly rare. And and to me, rewilding is about hope. You know, conservation has built these tiny islands, like the elves in Lord of the Rings. You know, they've created these tiny little islands where they're all hiding there going, oh, we can keep this nice. And that's great. You know, we have to do that. But it's not enough. You know, I'm not happy with managed decline. I'm not happy just to sit there and my little elfin kingdom going, oh, it's okay here, but outside it's all shit, you know? <laughs> I, I, want, I want to sort of... Um, I want this to be hope for the future. I want to be able to say to people, actually, you know, this is the low point right now. This is the low point in our relationship with nature. It's going to get better from here. Hello, I'm Chris Packham, and you're listening to Sustain a Babble. I remember when you first got hold of your bit of land. I remember talking to you about it. And one of the things um, that I remember you saying, have I misremembered this? I don't know. Was that basically you bought this land and you're like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let, let nature do its thing here. And then basically nature didn't because <laughs> it was surrounded by other fields. With nature and salt. there was... <laughs> nature was in the salt. Well, because you bought you, 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 your bit of land is a field, right? Surrounded by other fields, and the, around those other fields, uh, basically nothing could get in. So it's all very well going, you know, do your thing, but nothing could get in. So, what what's been harder about it? Maybe tell us a bit about how you actually started this off, and and what's harder about rewilding than you might think. Yeah, I think maybe me and nature have had words since we last spoke because it, it seems to have got its act together a little bit more. But um, but yeah, no. So so just just maybe just to, to clarify what what I've actually done about um more recently I've actually set up a, a new organisation called Somerset Wildlands, uh, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But um, it, about five years ago I bought my first bit of land shortly after I, I I moved down the southwest, and I've always kind of wanted to, to to do something a bit like that, I guess. And I just I just did it. It came up. I saw it on Zoopla, and I just bought it. Um, and it was a, it was an eight, eight acre field, you know. And it was not there was nothing really of interest there botanically. It was just grass with some hedges. I can't visualize how like big eight square. acres is. Can you? Can you? It's, it's I think it's like four football pitches. I think. Okay. Which makes it sound that's bigger pre- than it is. It's pretty big. Yeah, when you're down on it, it feels quite small because there's no, it's flat, you know. But um, but it's, um, 
uh, and there was just kind of grass. And I just thought, oh, no, I'll leave it. I'll leave it and see what happens. And it's been five years and it hasn't been grazed by cattle at all, this one, this particular field. I dug a pond at one point just because I, I, I guess I couldn't stop myself from fiddling a little bit. So I dug a bit of a pond <laughs> or like a well, scrape. If, you ever, if one of your friends ever disappears, then at yeah. least you've got a place to put them, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah, well, in the that's, pond. yeah, that absolutely, and don't ever dig it. <laughs> just don't ever look there. That's that's all I could say. I can't say why, but just don't ever look in it. Um, yeah, it, so I, I sort of dug a scrape, and and, I, and I've left it, and I've, I've shoved a few, you know, willow sticks in the ground as I've been walking around. That they've all died, but but it's been great. So basically, now it's five years worth of tangled grass, and it changes every year and it's wonderful to see it change every year the species come and go slightly you know when it started out because the grass was short there was some things that are, don't really turn up so much anymore like lapwings but there's lapwings all over the place in the area so I don't worry about that too much but I've got you know I mean I, I don't want to do you a big list of species that your listeners might not be interested in but you know I, I, I've, I've seen otters there marsh harriers there great wow. egrets there little egrets there um you know, there's 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 a deer and her fawn that have been there all this year, and I've I've seen them every time I've been down there. They they live there. Um, I mean, it's very hard to say animals live in something that's eight acres big because most animals are too big for that. They need more space. But you see how animals start to use spaces differently. So, for example, the deer the deer rut in my field, especially on the scrape when it's dry. So they they fight there and they give birth to fawns there. They probably feed elsewhere. They'll go outside to feed. You know, but this is their little refuge. Um, you know, the skylarks hunt there. They might nest elsewhere. You know, um, certainly great egrets hunt there. I, they presume as, as herons, but they'll they'll nest somewhere else. So this is one of the important things about, re- about rewilding or, or you know letting bits of land go for nature is that animals use land in different ways. You know, birds very often feed somewhere completely different than where they nest. So if the landscape's all the same, that's not great. There's not going to be many little places for all these things to happen. So you know, very you might look at a field and go, oh, it's great for lapwings because they're all there. But actually, we don't know that because maybe we need a bit of variety and it's not just about one species and all that kind of thing. So. Um, yeah, so it's been great, and it's just, there's just life is just there. You know, in summertime particularly, it just buzzes. You know, I'm not saying all my neighbours are terrible, but if you look at the border between mine and my neighbours, which is improved grassland and improved in agricultural terms means it's been ploughed up, sowed with seeds at some point in the past, and fertilised at some point in the past. So it's mm. bright green, it's bright green, and all pretty much the one species of grass. And then you've got mine, which is all things that farmers hate like thistles and rank reeds and bulrushes and all that kind of stuff you know and uh it's great i love it you know what can i say ready let's sing there's a worm at the bottom of the garden and his name is wiggly woo there's a worm at the bottom so you you've talked a bit about buying land yeah does that mean you're loaded and you have to be loaded to do rewilding no. Um, put simply, I mean, buying land is expensive. Sure, if you want to buy land, it's not cheap. I'm not going to lie about that and be, you know, and say, oh, it's 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 a super easy thing to do. Um, but small bits of land aren't necessarily as expensive as some people think. You know, I, I, as I say, one of the things I've done with this organisation, Somerset Wildlands, is it's trying to do two things. It's trying to buy land for itself. So that's collectively by a sort of funding from donors and the public but it's also trying to work with existing landowners or just individuals who want to get involved so building up sort of a network of affiliates and and in the last week i think i've had six different people get in touch with me either saying they've got a little bit of land like five acres or three acres or whatever um that they want to rewild and can we help and i'm like yes or people saying you know i've got ten thousand or twenty thousand pounds to buy a field can you help me 
So, so there are, you know, so it is expensive, but there's perhaps more people than you might think. You know, it's the price of a car, I guess. And some people would think, you know, for a small bit of land, some people might decide, you know, to do it. But it's, there's no doubt about it. Buying land for yourself is not something that everyone can do. No question. Like, so, uh, it takes some resource. But, but I think we can, that doesn't mean rewilding is invalid, if you get me, because there are, the only reason it's been left to the individual is because of where we are in this country. Um, you know, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. You could either say rewilding should be, you know, we, you know, our national parks, for example, are all owned privately. Um, so there's sort of two ways of rewilding, say, in a park. I'm not sure you I realise that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I they're all owned by, well, that... mostly owned privately. Yeah. Wow. We have just very little public land in this country of any kind. There's a bit, but not much. So you've got two ways. Then let's just say, for argument's sake, you think, right, I want to do something for wildlife. I want to, I want to do some rewilding. Right. You think there's two ways of doing that. One is we either change the rules and regulations that encourages people to rewild on their own land. And that's what a lot of, you know, campaign groups try and do. They're thinking, right, I'm going to try and change the rules to make that happen. But that's but not easy either. Farm subsidies. Yeah, farm subsidies and all yeah, that kind yeah, of yeah. stuff. And that's, that's not easy either because then you're in a direct fight about food and people have to change their jobs and they don't like that. Or you might say, we should have a load of public land. Maybe, you know, the state should own loads of land and we should leave some of that completely alone for nature. But that's not going to be easy either because... You know, this. You know, there's there's people who live in all those places, and you know, it's not straightforward. And and so they're both completely valid arguments. And I see, I see the, the the point in both of them. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle who are just going, we don't have time for this. Let's have that argument, and we'll all take part in it. But in the meantime, we're going to do what we can to buy some land, and that might be individuals who've got the money buying land, or it might be, um, you know, charities and campaign groups getting together and saying, let's raise some cash from as many people as we can and build a community of interest around this. You know, and I think that I think they're both valid. I think they're it both sounds fine. like it's it must be full of a sense of agency, like you're actually doing a thing. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like you land right this this field. I'm buying it and I'm leaving it alone for nature. And there isn't like a government minister who can screw that up, or a consultation yeah. that can be a sham, or you know, something other annoying that's out of my control. It feel, does it does it feel like you are actually kind of positively doing a thing that I mean, no one? I'm sure the government. I'm sure the government could bugger it up if they wanted to. Oh yeah, they totally could. There's so there's <laughs> many things they could do if they want to, um, and we'll we'll find out, I guess. Um, yeah, that 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 is there is a sense of that. Yeah, there's a real sense of you know there's a lot of refugees from the environmental movement trying to get into it now because I think of that exact feeling of just like there's you know you spend 20 years trying to you know, tweak laws and regulations. And then maybe at some point you just go, oh, screw this, screw this. I'm going to just, re- you know, retreat into my own little world and buy some land. But I don't think it has to be a retreat. I think I think some people look at it that way, but actually it can be much more positive than that. It's about, you know, you, you can you can use those bases to educate, to inform, to campaign, to challenge. Um, and, you know, to build that community of hope. And the number of people that feel about this exactly the way I did. You know, when I first heard about rewilding, I'd, I'd always wanted to do this. When I was a kid, I used to draw little maps um, of imagining bits of land and colouring all the animals that would live there. You know, that was what mm-hmm. I did as a kid. And, you know, the very first essay I wrote in university was about, um, I think, bringing wolves to Scotland. It wasn't great, but it was all right, you know. But I didn't know these things had names. And when I first heard about the idea of rewilding and it gets, someone gave it a name, and I think it was about 2005 I first heard that word, I didn't need anyone to explain it to me. It was just, it was just like, oh yeah, that's it. That's what we need to do. We need to rewild. We need to make things wild again. Okay, that's that's a loaded term. It's not perfect. You know, people will argue and fight about what does wild mean and blah, blah, blah. But we know what it means. 
We know what it means by how it makes us feel. We, we know what people mean when they say that, by and large. And that was just such a little beacon of hope for me, that sense that we didn't just have to sit there thinking things are crap and they're getting worse. Talk to us about uh, something that comes across in the book that Isabella Tree has written about the Nepis state is that some people really don't like rewilding. <laughs> yeah. So some people, uh, like in Scotland, you hear stories of Scottish farmers shooting beavers that have yeah. been reintroduced. Or, you know, the stick that they got in Nep for letting their valuable farming land go to yeah. seed. How do we... How do we make it a thing that everyone thinks is a good idea and doesn't kind of look like it's people from NGOs or charities or from London coming and buying farming land and then kind of ruining people's idea of what stuff is supposed to look like down there? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of complicated issues wrapped up in that, many of which are not really to do with rewilding. I suspect they're more to do with identity and, and, and so on. But, you know, for example, with the, the beavers thing, well, there's there's a lot of farmers who just you know they, they shoot wildlife that's what they do so this is a minority of farmers who seem to just do that and you know they shoot the beavers because they see them as an inconvenience because they don't like them because they might flood a bit of their field i think that's slightly separate to rewilding because they, they may also be shooting foxes and badgers as well who knows but that's 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 a kind of minority thing um i think most people are in the middle somewhere um who aren't really into this how do we make it so that this is something that everyone likes i suppose i don't worry too much about it at the moment because i think that's it's a new thing. It is still a relatively new thing, and it's going to be challenging. It is going to be challenging because it is a challenge to the status quo. It's 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 a challenge to the way we do things. It's 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 a sort of non-extractive use of land. I'm not. I was I was about to say it's non-economic, but that's not necessarily true because there may be ways of making economic value out of this. But it's not extractive. It's 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 doing something different, and that is a real challenge to the way we've looked at land, to the way many people perceive their own relationship with the land, which is about working the land. So that will change, but that will only change over time. Um, and I think I think that's about having that conversation, about having that argument, having that debate. You know, at the moment, we've got virtually, I'd say, somewhere well less than 1% of our country would be in any condition you can consider wild, probably far even less than that. Um, so any progress we make is going to be good progress. And there will be some arguments on the way. Hopefully they won't be too bad. But I think I think I think the conversation is changing. I think you can already see something that was very fringe has become quite mainstream. You know, people who are still dead against are now talking about things like wilder farming and so on. But I do completely sympathize with farmers as well while I'm on the subject because they you know they're trying to grow food. We need food. Um they're trying to grow food. And they're getting pressure from all different sides. Some people are saying, you've got to grow it this way, you've got to do it this way, you've got to be, you know, organic, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And then you've got people saying, leave a strip for birds, leave a strip for field mice, leave a bit for a bat. You know, it's all different advice. And then you've got the rewilders saying, oh, you know, we should do this things completely differently. As far as I'm concerned, rewilding and farming don't have very much to do with each other. Rewilding is not farming. So we need farms. We, we, need, we need farming because we need food. Therefore, we need nature-friendly farming. And that's great. So that's we farm in as friendly a way for nature as we can. We also need land that is just not farmed. And that's what rewilding is. So, you know, um, rewilding is not farming. It's almost the opposite of farming. Um, now, some farmers may also be rewilders. Some rewilders may also be farmers, but they don't have to be the same people. So when people say to me, what would I say to farmers about rewilding? I'm saying, I don't say anything to farmers about rewilding. Any more than I say anything to people who make 
you know, car engines about, I don't tell them about wind turbines. They're different things. They're connected, but they're not the same. But I also think it depends. You guys have been campaigners, right? We know each other. You've all worked as campaigners. And maybe it's because we come from campaign background. Maybe I've always thought, because I come from a campaign background, I don't mind if it's, there's a little bit of pushback to something. That's to be expected when you're doing yeah. something new. I'm always but a bit I, disappointed I, when there isn't. And I wonder, I wonder whether that, in effect, holds me and us back. Like, I'm kind of spoiling for a fight. And I think I, sometimes I, I don't need one. Definitely, I'm not spoiling for a fight. It's the last <laughs> thing I really want. But at the same time, I don't expect everyone to be happy with something new. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but there's something, I mean, the, 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 the case for it is just so kind of open and shut brilliant, right? Like, nature is great. Let's have more of it and let's not dick about and I promise you it'll be okay. Or you can't, and I am quite up, personally, I like having a rumble as much as the next person. And I'm quite up for just saying to people who don't like it, just wait and see. Shut up yeah. and wait and see. Because you I will think, you will get it when people are coming here and investing in the shops and stuff because people are coming to look at our thrush. <laughs> <laughs> people uh, don't pay good money to look at your thrush, Dave. That that is a, just a, wait and see. I'll, a privilege extended wait only to your network of doctors. Uh, yeah, I think there's something good. There's definitely huge economic potential in it in terms of ecotourism, but also, you know, carbon storage and, and, and you know, all that stuff. Well, there's, there was, there's, there was a thing. There was a thing in the news. I hate to be all topical and everything, but there was a thing in the news where a bunch of scientists said that uh, by sort of strategically choosing about 30% of the world's farmland, you could basically solve all of our climate problems and, and letting it go turn back to nature. And that was so. Oh, that, that's probably going to get the ear of a bunch of people that wouldn't ordinarily be just interested in just letting a few bits of scrub grow. You know, there's so many. There's so many. Um, you know, in the, in the NGO world, we call them co-benefits, right? There's so many co-benefits to this. You create space for people to get outside and interact with nature. You create space for wildlife. Um, you create less fragile nature reserves because they're you know they're not so heavily managed, right? So they can adapt more easily to things like climate change, or frankly, if all the staff have to go off sick because of COVID, um, or off work, I should say, not sick, hopefully, but off work because of COVID. You know, I, I remember seeing those headlines saying, you know, nature reserves are in crisis because it's been known there for four weeks. And you think if it's if nature's in crisis because we've not turned up for four weeks, we're doing something wrong. You know what I mean? That's that's a basic. You know, okay, I understand maybe you got to change the bins and stuff, but you know, if the actual core idea is in crisis because we've not been around for a few weeks, we, we're doing something wrong. So I think there's so many co benefits to it, and you know, I, I talk a lot about the wildlife, but there's a huge cultural aspect to this as well. You know, our I think I think in this age we're in a very you know. We're in an age where there's a lot of big questions that are bigger than people like me can talk about to do, you know, identity and globalization and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but the one thing that's always missing from those conversations for me is the connection with the environment and the connection to the land and to the place. You know, I don't know how anyone really, how any of us can really feel that connected or grounded without some sort of connection to place and environment, you know. Um, particularly in a world that we live in now where everything seems like such a big mulch sometimes. And I think with, with rewilding and with that and everything, and, the, and not just rewilding, for example, just purely as the getting a bit of land leaving alone, but the sort of broader cultural movement of rewilding, which, which we maybe can talk about too. Um, there's, there's something there about reconnecting us to that, that, that place and climate and land and, and, you know, whatever someone's background, I, I think it, there's, there's a real, 
importance to that and a real chance to, to do so. But at the moment, there just simply isn't the space for that. There isn't, you know, there isn't the opportunity for everyone to be able to get involved with nature in that way. And if everyone suddenly flooded out the cities into the countryside to do that, we'd see huge problems because there's simply not the space or the access for them to do that. Whereas with rewilding, you know, we, for want of a better word, we can increase the supply of nature. And that makes it easier for people to start interacting with it, getting to know it, getting to grips with it. And I think that would do wonders for our society. Um, you know, I'll just say, I'm talking about hope, rewilding is the only thing I've ever worked in where the left and the right actually agree. Broad, broad, you know, elements of them come together, you know, which is so unusual. It's a real uniting thing. So you and Somerset Wildlands are, are doing this amazing stuff down in down in Somerset. You're trying, you're trying to get, you know, more land acquired and do more rewilding that way. But presumably there is, I'd imagine there are people listening who are thinking, so what should I do in my little patch of land? You know, it, it, sound, it sounds like a good thing to do, be that my garden or communal gardens, if, you know, shared flats or whatever. Like, it, is there a way that people can just leave that land alone and and that kind of counts as rewilding or or what you know and what if what if their neighbors get all cross about it you know (laughs) (laughs) which yeah which could which could happen we used to get tired out when i lived in the people's republic in north somerset used to get tired out we didn't mow the lawn every two weeks you know never mind instilling a wildebeest in the back garden so (laughs) how'd you go about it uh, yeah, I mean, well, for, for someone who's listening who wants to help, I mean, obviously the first thing I'll say, which I have to say, is you should donate to an organisation at Somerset Wildlands because they will <laughs> help buy some land on your behalf. But moving on from that quickly, um, there's, I think, yeah, you can't really, like, you can in a, in a kind of correct academic sense, you can't really rewild a garden, right? A garden is sort of almost the antithesis of, of wildland because it's got a gardener, it's got someone who controls it. But what you can do is make your garden wilder. For sure, you know you can you can ditch some of the ornamental plants and bring back natives. I mean, even just in my own little garden here, slowly over the last five years, I've been swapping out, you know, ornamental shrubs and plants that I've inherited for native ones, and the difference is is instant. You know, you can look at some of these ornamental plants that look beautiful. No, not all ornamental plants like this, but you know, I've got some flowers that look beautiful, but there's nothing ever on them. Yeah. There's no bees on them. There's never anything living on them. You swap it out for something else, and suddenly, boom! You know, there's there's creatures crawling all over it. So, so we can certainly make our gardens wilder. You know, there's there's so many resources on that. You know, that everyone's talking about that now. If you watch Gardener's World, it's a weekly fixture now. You know, log piles and native plants, and letting your mo- your grass grow grow a bit. But I think with when it comes to the sort of urban and suburban environments and the smaller scale, we need to step back a little bit from just the immediate of what can I do to rewild my garden and start thinking of, well, if rewilding is a cultural movement about bringing wildness into our lives, into our cities, how do we start to think about the city as becoming a wilder organism, a wilder ecosystem full stop? So that will be about gardens partly, um, but it can also be about, you know, do we start trying to, you know, Pass, pass laws, for example, that we need to have green, wa- uh, green walls, you know, of native plants on every south-facing wall. Do we start lobbying our council to just let us grow vines up abandoned buildings? Do we, you know, do we, do we try and take over spaces for community gardens and so on? So none of those in themselves is a wild space, but they will help make the city wilder overall. I mean, that's not particularly revolutionary. That's been going on for a while. But there's a, there's a flip side too, because as we rewild the countryside and parts of the countryside, and we haven't really talked about food in this much at all. But the, the natural objection is, of course, what about the food? We need food. Where are we going to grow our food from? 
And that's absolutely true. Uh, there's, a, there's a few sort of obvious responses, which is one that we use a lot of land in the countryside for stuff that isn't food. You know, the obvious one is things like golf courses and grouse moors. But also there's, you know, there's maize for anaerobic digesters. Like there's, you know, like golf's grand, but, you know, it is what it is. There's maize for anaerobic digesters. There's, you know, unproductive, you know, uh, meat production. You know, we can say we should eat less meat. Of course, that frees up land. But another thing we can do is grow more food in the cities. Um, I think there was a study in Sheffield that said if they grew, um, you know, fruit and veg on 10% of the city's green space, it could produce enough fruit and veg for 15% of the population. So 90,000 people could be fed with fruit and veg five a day from 10% of the green space in Sheffield. Um, and given that most of that is probably parkland and ornamental and back gardens and sort of ornamental beds and stuff, just doing that, if it was organic gardening, you know, everyone, you know, suddenly had pop-up allotments and things, that in itself would be a huge boost to wildlife. Now, those wouldn't be wild spaces. But, you know, if you, you only have to go to any allotment or any local veg patch if it's organic and see that it's often as full of wildlife as, you know, as anyone's gar any other bit of garden, you know. So I think we, you know, as we refarm the, as we rewild the, the countryside, you know, we, we could start to look at refarming parts of the city and parts of the urban environment. And I think that, again, would be a huge boost to our food culture and our, our connection with nature. And it would be sort of, it would be, it would be useful as well. I think that that's really important too, to sort of blur those boundaries a bit. So it's not just countryside is for this and cities are for this. You start to mix it up a little bit. So uh, that is just about it for another episode of Sustainable Babble. Thank you very much, Alistair, for coming on and being superb and for just getting on and doing a thing. I'm always so in awe of people who just say, do you know what, I'm just going to do this, I'm going to start. And it doesn't come much more doing or starting than uh, what Somerset Wildlands are, are doing, what Alice is doing. So good on you and thank you for talking about it so passionately. Thank you, Dave, for, you know, being. <laughs> and uh, thank you to Dickie Moore for the music that begins, ends and intertwinkles this ep- this podcast. And thank you to Arthur Stobel for the artwork that so beautifully illustrates it. Indeed. Yes, very good. You can get in touch with us, Ol. You can tell us what you thought of the show. The show's plural this show any of our shows get in touch with us tell us what you thought of them we are on i'm stalling because i've forgotten we're on the internet at facebook.com slash search sustainer babble we're We're on on the the internet at (laughs) facebook.tweet and you can you can send us a myspace if you go on friends reunited okay okay i i mean yeah okay very good yeah, a friend of mine had to talk me through installing a computer the other day which was exactly like that thing in, in sort of disaster movies when they, when the air traffic control has to talk down a passenger <laughs> guy, you know guy, getting to guide down a plane that's in trouble I'm just a very old confused man so we're on facebook.tweet uh, we're on the twitter at the babble wagon and you can email us at hello at sustainybabble.fish and 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 most importantly we are a listener supported podcast and we need more support so go to if you like the podcast and you want to chuck us a quid or two www.patreon.com slash sustainababble where you can help us keep this show on the road yes yes very good right that's it I think uh, we're off to go and buy land and install dinosaurs yeah oh and just a little plug if you liked this episode and you want to hear what happens when Ol and Dave try to actually see some nature and some wilding in the flesh uh, we went in episode 155 
to go find some beavers. Uh, we went to a rewilding project and uh, go and listen to that. It was great fun. Listen to us sploshing about in some water. Lovely. Okay, I will see you next week, me old chum. Take it easy. Bye. Take it easy. Bye.